Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Greg. Uh, Hopefully... um... I'll get a chance to meet you. I'm sure lots of faces I haven't had a chance to meet uh, since I'm down in the city most of the time. Uh, but I'm always pleased to have an opportunity to come and speak to you about the Word of God and uh, share uh, insights that will hopefully and prayerfully propel you in your faith and build your, um, yeah, your, your trust that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. Um, I'm going to get started here. Uh, you know, it's, um, if you've heard any of my prior messages, you probably have picked up on the fact that I'm a fan of movies. Uh, one of the things I really like about uh, movies, or maybe I should say my favorite uh, cinematic maneuver, is the Easter egg. Okay, And so if you're not familiar with this concept, this is when the writers, the directors, they put in little details inside the movie that are maybe hints about future events. Maybe they're calling back something in a previous movie. Uh, It might be a a poster positioned in the background uh, with an interesting phrase. It might be um, some comment and, and banter between the actors that uh, is, seems like just a passing comment, but actually is like stuck in there for those who are really paying attention uh, to give them something to, to look for. Now, um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe does this to like the nth degree, right? They've got all this comic lore to work in. They've got these different backstories. They've got future movies to foreshadow. They're doing this all the time. And if you aren't aware, there are actually people who I believe are like, it's their job to watch these movies, to catalog and dissect all these Easter eggs, and they're putting out videos on YouTube. You can get 15, 20-minute videos about the latest movie and all the Easter eggs and articles about all these little things that they put in there. And, you know, if you're a fan and you want to show off your fandom, uh, some might say nerddom, but, you know, fandom, you might read these articles and watch these videos and then have, you know, conversations with your friends about how cool you are because you picked up on it, even though you had to go and research it. Now, I won't claim that I've ever done that, but, you know, if you wanted to do it, you could do it. Now, I think today's text is kind of like that. Uh, it's a short text. It's easy to kind of read over. Okay, Jesus went to this place and he healed some people and we move on. But I think that Matthew, the author of this account of Jesus' life, has put some things in here specifically. Not things that the modern Westerner might pick up on, but certainly that the Jewish reader of his day would have picked up on that are deliberate and insightful. And so I'm hoping that as we look at it together with the Spirit's help, we will come to see some things about Jesus that maybe we hadn't considered or hadn't um, realized before. So, um, as I mentioned, the text is short. It's only three verses, but I have three observations that I want to explore with you this morning. And like a good preacher, I got three points, and there's some alliteration. They're all, all, all of them start with H, okay? The hem of his garment, the healing of the nation, and a hidden reality. All right, so first, let's pick up, uh, let's get a little refresher on where we're at. We're in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. This is an eyewitness account. Uh, Matthew was one of the disciples, walked with Jesus for three years. And he is, um, at this point, Jesus has had a very, very busy week. 
Right? I, don't, I hope your week last week wasn't like this. Um, I, it's fairly overwhelming, I think, for Jesus. Jesus was, uh, has just received news that his cousin, John the Baptist, somewhat of a spiritual forerunner, certainly a, a father, spiritual father to some of Jesus' own disciples, has just been beheaded. He's been killed by uh, the, the king. Um, then Jesus, in an attempt to like, steal away and get some time with his disciples, probably to process this, what does this mean for our ministry, that our spiritual forerunner is dead? Jesus is swarmed by 5,000 of his closest friends. Well, it actually says 5,000 men. Uh, we think men and their families. They follow Jesus to his spiritual retreat location, and Jesus, in his compassion, takes the time. He teaches them. He feeds them miraculously from a child's Lunchables. And all of a sudden now, um, they're likely exhausted. Jesus sends his disciples in a boat across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus finally gets a little time to himself. And then Jesus, I think, in order to avoid all these crowds, walks on the water to meet his disciples at the boat in the dead of night. All right, Jesus is not trying to show off to the crowds what he can do. He's trying to hide <laughs> from the crowds. Now, what happens to Jesus and his disciples as soon as they hit land? The scripture tells us that the people recognized him. And then they went all and got all their sick, and they brought them to Jesus. Um, now, before we start to think poorly about the people of Gennesaret always hassling Jesus, let's recognize some positive things. They recognized him. This means that they had their eyes open. They were paying attention. Jesus came to town. You know what they did? They cleared their schedule. Are you clearing your schedule to make room for Jesus? And then they brought all of their friends, their loved ones, the sick, anyone they could get, and they were bringing people to Jesus. Can't argue with that. Now, a significant portion of those who were in this crowd likely had come from this wilderness teaching and feasting experience, Jesus feeding the 5,000, because these regions are very close together, and that's why they would have recognized Jesus. They had just been with him. <clears throat> Um, and so we see that the people have enough faith in Jesus to bring their sick to him. But what about this touching the, the edge of his cloak or the fringe of, this, of the garment? This was the, sort of the, the thing that left me, um, I would say, interested and, and caused me to do some digging. So scholars think that this phrase, hem of the garment, uh, could be also translated sort of corner of his uh, cloak, uh, is a reference to the sits it. Now, if you speak Hebrew, and I butchered that word, please forgive me, but these are ritual tassels that Jewish, um, the Israelite people and Jewish men would have worn on their clothing. <clears throat> now, we have a picture of this uh, to kind of give you an idea. So here on your left is uh, the tunic that men would have worn at that time. You see it's fairly long. It comes down to about the mid-calf, and it's got some bling at the bottom. Right, a little bit, a little, little bedazzled something there. All right. Now, this isn't the height of men's fashion today. You wouldn't expect to see a lot of guys walking around with these little tassels on their fringe. But this would have been very common in the first century. And not just for Jewish men, but men of all ethnic groups and religious groups would have worn a tunic like this. And to jazz it up, they put a little something at the bottom. Now, this here on uh, your right, these, would be, these are images of the tassels. And you'll notice that the one on the right is white, but the one on the left has this distinctive blue cord. And this is very specific, uh, specific to Jews and specific to God 
In Numbers 15, God writes this, uh, gives this, says this to Moses, and Moses records it. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments. Make a note there, a mental note. Corners of the garment with a blue cord in each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your hearts and your eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Why? To be your God. I am the Lord your God. God's clear intention with these tassels was for them to remind the Israelites not only of his holiness and his separateness, but also of their separateness. Notice the scripture says that they would be consecrated to God, that is set apart or reserved for God's own purpose. Central to Israel's self-identity was that they had a position of honor as God's chosen and called out people. And these tassels were meant to remind them of that every day. So you got a tassel in each corner. Every direction you go, you're preceded by the word because the corner is in front of you. Everywhere you go, you're reminded of God's commands. So no wonder that these tassels became actually a distinguishing mark of Hebrew culture. Not only would uh, another Jew see your tassels and recognize like, oh yeah, you got those tassels from Joe down the street. He's really good. He makes the best tassels. It's not just an insider thing. Any person who was on the outside of Judaism would recognize you as a Jew because of your distinctive blue cord tassel. And so this was something that everyone would known. Now, next question is, well, why are they trying to touch the hem of the garment or the corner of the garment? Why are they reaching to touch these tassels? Is this like a genie in the bottle thing, you know, rub two tassels together and like get your wish? Like what is going on with this? Interestingly, the tassel um, and this, the I guess, you know, the bling uh, on the end of the, the, the robe uh, became uh, known as like a, a status symbol, right? So you can imagine the beggar is going to have fairly tattered clothing and not much at the edge on the fringe. Uh, but a king, right, he's going to have very elaborate tassels, probably made by the most skilled uh, weaving artisans of the day. And Jesus actually references this practice, this, the, the fact that the tassels had taken on this meaning. Uh, if you're not familiar with Jesus, uh, he inter- has some interactions with the orig- religious elite of his day, the Pharisees. They were a religious order that really prided themselves on how well they followed God's commands and how big a deal they made of their religious activity. And Jesus says this about them. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seat in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. So Jesus is telling us that the Pharisees had their tassels done up real big so people would know, oh, that's a Pharisee. Like, give him honor. Like, recognize he's a rabbi. He's a person of position and power and authority. Now, I never expected in all my years to preach to you a sermon against the misuse of tassels, okay? I didn't think tassel swag would ever be on the list, but let me tell you, this is how deep our commitment runs at Jubilee Church to preach the whole counsel of God, that no scripture would be overlooked. All y'all with long tassels, 
You know who you are. You got to cut that out. All right, you can't be coming in here flaunting your tassels and your wide phylacteries trying to show up. We ain't about that. No, no, no. God ain't having it. You leave that in the closet at home. In all seriousness, thank you very much, thank you very much. In all seriousness, what Jesus is saying is that the uh, Pharisees had misused the tassel. Right? The purpose of the tassel was to remind the people of their faithfulness and their devotion to God. But they had turned it into a way to show off, a way to flaunt themselves in their own performance, a way to garner for themselves honor when God is the one who deserves honor. So, for the religious elite of Jesus' day, status and position had become more important than the faithfulness that these tassels were meant to call to mind. The hem of his robe. Second, the healing of the nation. Okay, so tassels remind the wearer of God's moral standards and they communicate something about uh, their set-apart position. But what about the reaching, the touching? Why are we grabbing tassels? Well, we actually have some compelling precedent for this. If you remember, back in Matthew chapter 9, there was a woman who had had a bleeding disorder for 12 years. Because of her bleeding, she was ostracized by her community. She was separated from her loved ones. She couldn't even have physical contact with the people she cared about and who cared about her. She was completely on the outside and isolated. But she heard that Jesus was coming to town. And she said, you know, I have got to get to Jesus. In fact, if I could only touch the hem of his robe, maybe I will be made well. And you might know the story. She pushes through the crowd. Jesus is being jostled by people all around. And he says, wait a minute, who touched me? I felt power come out. He finds this woman and he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Touching the edge of his cloak, the corner of his garment, she was made whole. Now, you can imagine, when looking at those garments, in order to do that required a posture. Kneeling, bowing down, approaching Jesus from a place of dependence and need. And because she recognized his status as a man of God, as something more than just a good teacher, she experienced healing. Now, interestingly, Matthew's account of Jesus' life is considered the most Jewish account. That is, Matthew is sprinkling in all throughout little Jewish Easter eggs, little details that the Jewish person would know because his gospel is shouting, even if it's quietly shouting, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Details of Jewish culture and Jewish knowledge and Jewish worldview that would speak very clearly to his Jewish audience. And so again, what's the fuss about tassels, Greg? I don't really see the point. Well, Matthew is trying to say, even to you guys who know the inside details of what these tassels are about, there's something about Jesus and these tassels. Now, a typical Jew from the first century would be familiar with the next verse I'm going to read to you. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is God talking to his people, bringing them into the promised land. Basically, here are the terms of the lease, guys. Okay? You're going to come in the land, 
And this is what I got to say about our relationship when you're in this promised land. God says, if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases that you had or that you knew in Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Interesting. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me, right? We'll go in the land, we'll follow some rules, do our religious observance, blessing, you know, healing, all this great stuff's come to us. Well, the challenge is that the flip side, if you don't follow my commands, if you don't worship me alone, if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, then I will put on you all the diseases that you knew in Egypt, and I will pull you out of the land. And if you know the biblical record, this is actually what happens. The people of Israel fail to follow God. They chase after other gods, despite him sending many prophets and many teachers, and then eventually they are exiled out of the land. Now, by the time of Jesus' ministry, many had returned to the land, and they were looking to kind of restore faithful practice of Judaism, hoping to get back to Deuteronomy 7 and the blessings that came from that old covenant. Now, with this understanding, reaching out for Jesus' tassels, they must have had in their mind the law, the law that they had failed to follow, the, the very shortcomings and moral failings that had led to their exile. Well, this Old Testament connection would be obvious to the Jews. And Matthew's account is proclaiming to the Jewish skeptic. Remember those blessings of Deuteronomy 7? Remember how you couldn't attain them on your own? Jesus has come, and now the blessings have followed. Do you get that? Tassels plus Jesus equals blessing. Now, interestingly, the last prophet of the Jews, uh, the last author, um, the last book included in the Jewish scriptures is from the prophet Malachi. In Malachi 4.2, Malachi speaks of a day when the son of righteousness would rise and he would have healing in his wings. I see somebody mouthing it. I like that. That's nice. Healing in his wings. Guess what? The Hebrew word for wings is the same word for corner. Healing in his wings, reaching for the corner of his robe. Healing is restored to the people in the land. I don't think this is coincidence. I think this is Matthew trying as he may to put in as many signs and signals and Easter eggs for the Jewish reader to see that Jesus Christ is the linchpin of a covenant. Now, I ask the question, is Jesus simply delivering old covenant blessings? Well, if you paid attention to the scripture, it said, if you follow my commands and if you follow my laws, then healing would come. But had the people done it? Had the people of Gennesaret somehow returned to faithful practice of Judaism and finally earned God's favor? No. This is not a story about God's people returning to faithfulness and mustering themselves to piety and cashing in their spiritual cachet for blessing. No, this is still a story about grace. God's blessing, healing flows from Jesus, not because of what the people of Gennesaret had done, but because of what Jesus is about to do. When you or I pray for healing, we approach Jesus. 
the one who perfectly fulfilled the commands of the law. He could wear these tassels without shame because every step he took, he was preceded by the law and he perfectly fulfilled it. Every way he turned, the law made a demand and he met it. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a problem with standards. When I find a standard that I don't measure up to, I don't like to be near it. I try to get away from it. Case in point, I played high school basketball and we played against a guy named Rashard Lewis. Some of you might remember Rashard Lewis. Rashard Lewis was uh, six foot 10. He was drafted by the Seattle Supersonics straight out of high school. He uh, was a two-time NBA All-Star and won a championship with the Miami Heat. Interestingly, Rashard Lewis and I were born, both born in Louisiana, not too far apart. And we both played high school basketball in Houston, and that's where the comparison ends. When Rashard Lewis got the ball coming down the middle of the lane, I didn't stand next to Rashard Lewis to say, look how I measure up to Rashard Lewis, because Rashard Lewis elevated, and he rocked the dunk. And I was running away, because I didn't want to be on nobody's poster. When the standard comes, and you know you don't live up to it, there is fear, there is shame, there is hiding, there is isolation. If I was wearing the tassels, I wouldn't be filled up, puffed up. I would be reminded of my shortcomings. I would be reminded of how God has a perfect moral standard that I can't seem to fit. When we have the standard in our hands, the standard speaks indictment and condemnation. It brings to us the curse. But when Jesus Christ puts on the tassels, he fills up what is lacking with righteousness. And when his righteousness meets God's standard, blessing and healing can flow because he has met the standard. Only Jesus has done that. We might be tempted to ignore God's standards, to leave them aside and to live our own life, not thinking about them. Or like the Pharisees, we might be tempted to make a big show of all the religious activity that we're doing. But let me tell you something, your religious activity and your uh, ignorance about standards, neither of them can save you. Neither of them will help you meet God and stand before him blameless and confident on the day that you meet him. But you know what will? Jesus Christ has met the standard. He has fulfilled the law. He said, I'm not removing the law. I'm not making, abolishing the law. I am going to fulfill it. I'm going to fill it up. And when he does that, God's blessing can come. Because of Jesus' obedience, wrath, the wrath of God was satisfied. The judgment that was meant for us was diverted. Forgiveness has been granted. Guilt has been removed. Regeneration is initiated and healing is released. In Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Because Jesus Christ was cursed for me, he absorbed the curses of Deuteronomy 7. The abundant grace and compassion of God now has a conduit to reach me. Rather than the law being a wall and a barrier to God's blessing coming into my life, Jesus Christ has opened a way through his perfect obedience for that blessing to come. And there is no lack in this text. It says all who touched it were healed. This is an overwhelming blessing pouring out. This would have caught the attention of every person. I mean, they says they went and they got all of their sick. No person who saw Jesus thought, mm, yeah, maybe something better is coming. The restorative nature of this miracle is seemingly boundless. 
Through this example, God is beckoning us to mimic the people of Gennesaret. Like the woman with the bleeding disorder, we must seek our healing grace from Jesus, no matter the obstacles. The desperation and determination of those who receive Jesus' touch are often highlighted in the Gospels. And their stories are meant to give us confidence that God answers prayer, that God responds. Like the friends who tore open the roof to lower the paralytic down to meet Jesus, we should be pushing through the crowds, carrying our loved ones if we need to, tearing open roofs if we have to, to get to Jesus. Now, if all this talk about Jewish tassels and the law and how Jesus fulfills it doesn't give you confidence that God wants to make a way to bring blessing into your life, that's fine. I nerd out on that kind of stuff, but for you, maybe this will help. I want to give you more than just theology to stand on. I want to give you confidence from the power of testimony. The text simply states, all who touched it were healed. I can confidently and boldly stand before you today to tell you that the healing touch of Jesus is alive and well today. In our community, in fact, we have growing numbers of people in our churches who are experiencing God's miraculous and restoring touch. Don't let anyone tell you that the miracles of the New Testament have gone away, that it's over, that that was for a past time. You know, Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, he didn't just get a physical body. He was restored to immortality and eternality that he always shared with the Father, which gives him infinite reach. He can be any place, anytime he wants to be. Make no mistake, Jesus is alive in the fullest sense of the concept. And he is among his people. He is still Emmanuel, God with us. Just ask Amanda Renault. Amanda told me recently about how she had two years of chronic back, low back pain and began when she was pregnant with her youngest daughter. After she birthed the child, she continued to have pain, bending over, reaching down, picking up. Come on, ladies, you understand what I'm talking about. Pain in her back. But she went to our meeting, Celebration Midwest, in 2002, and God miraculously touched her, healed her in a moment. She's never had back pain again. Or you can ask Ryan Eifert. Ryan works in uh, carpentry and uh, home building, and he was having right shoulder pain, was getting in the way of his work. He'd seen the chiropractor, made no progress. He came to see me. I wasn't sure what was wrong with him. I prayed for him. He didn't get better. I felt pretty bad about that. Not going to lie. But you know who didn't feel bad about it? Jesus. Because at Celebration Midwest, Jesus touched him and made him well, completely healed his shoulder, and now he's working. He has no problems. I thought I had come falling short. I thought I had failed. Jesus wasn't worried about it. Let me tell you this. If that leaves you skeptical, okay, fine. You know, those are pain things. Is there a real diagnosis? I mean, can Jesus really do miracles? There's a foster family among us who um, had a foster son. He was about a year old. He had a condition called hydrocephalus. Hydrocephalus is a condition where there's excess fluid in the, brain, in the skull and on the brain. And it compresses the brain and compresses the nerves. He had developmental delays. He wasn't able to do the things you would expect a typical one-year-old to do. He'd been seen by the neurosurgeon. He was planned to have surgery. They were going to do brain surgery, place a drain that would try to take fluid off and relieve the pressure. Uh, the family prayed for this young, young child um, before surgery. 
In the morning of surgery, they noticed he was looking more alert, more active. His brain, his skull didn't look quite as swollen. So they called in the surgeon. The surgeon looked at the child, turned to the family and said, what did you do? And they're like, we prayed. (laughs) He's like, call off the surgery. The child has not had surgery. He does not have hydrocephalus. He's met all of his developmental milestones. He's now a perfectly normal, functioning two-year-old, and he's among us running and playing and laughing like any two-year-old should. Medically documented, surgeon-confirmed miracle. Not because of anything we have done. Not because we put on our phylacteries and our tassels. Not because of our religious observances. No, because of Jesus Christ. Because of his power. Because he pleases the Father. And it pleases the Father to bring blessing to his people. Now I got three minutes left. I'm behind. All right? I don't have time to tell you about Nikki Quarter's ankle chronically injured, healed, or John Rouse's leg-length discrepancy, which in the moment of prayer was corrected and his foot pain went away. I could tell you about anxiety and depression being removed from people's lives. Jesus Christ is among us today, healing. I saw Ezra Miles a couple, uh, about a month ago, bend over and touch his toes. He said, I had scoliosis. I couldn't do that until Jesus touched me last month. God is at work and he deserves the praise. That's okay. Keep praising him. He deserves glory. Now, here's the thing. We're going to pray for healing today. I don't know if God's going to heal you. I don't have control over that. That's God's discretion. But I know this. I know that he can, and I know he likes to do it. All right? And I want you to have faith to come and ask him. And you know what? If he doesn't heal you today, we got a week of prayer coming up. We're going to keep praying for you because we believe that Jesus Christ is alive and he's among his people. But let's consider with this last thought before I go. The hidden, hidden reality. No doubt, Jesus performed many miracles during his time on earth. In this particular text, or in most of the texts, we see that the healing miracles are combined with or or, or accompany teaching about the kingdom. Because healing and miracles are, are signs pointing to something greater. Interestingly, in this text, there's no comment about teaching. But if we look at John's account of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, we see that Jesus goes next to Capernaum, which is like the big city center, and teaches in their synagogue. And the response to Jesus is different from what it's typically been. Usually people hear Jesus teaching and they're marveling at how great he is. In this instance, the people actually desert him. They say, who can hear this teaching? Or can this man, is this man crazy for the things he said? Now, I'm going to read to you from John 6. Jesus uh, said to the people, he says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Just so you know, another Easter egg, right? This is a reference to Jesus feeding the people in the wilderness and Moses feeding the people in the wilderness. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, greater than the manna and greater than the bread that I gave you, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus' concern is that many among these crowds are coming to him for a bodily need. It's not wrong to want to be fed. It's not wrong to want pain to leave your body. But every person that Jesus fed was hungry again. 
And every person that Jesus healed eventually died and was buried, and their body has suffered decay. These blessings, as miraculous and noteworthy as they are, are temporary earthly blessings. Jesus wants to make sure that we don't miss the fact that these are signs of something greater. If you had gone to the soccer game with me last night to watch our first place team win again, and you had seen someone standing outside the stadium staring up at the sign that says City Park, marveling at the neon glow, you would have said, bro, the game is inside. The action is in here. Do not miss. You can come near to the kingdom and experience its blessings, but not enter into the kingdom. Jesus does not want you to miss that these are signs pointing to something greater, that you can have your body healed, but miss out on eternity with God. There is more than just healing for your body, more than just a better job or a better relationship available to you in Jesus. Yes, he cares about those things, but he wants to bring you into communion with God. He wants to eternally unite your soul to the one who made you and knows you and has every good thing for you so you can be with him forever. Better than a healed body is an immortal body that can never die. And so I would invite you, come to Jesus. Come by foot, come by bike, come by car, come by plane, come by train. I don't care how you get there. Get to Jesus and reach for the hem of his robe. But don't stop with asking for healing for your body. You need healing for your soul. And Jesus Christ is the one who can open the gates of life and bring you in. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his example. I thank you for his power and his position. I thank you that he is who he said he was. I thank you that you've given us the scripture to unveil to our eyes his glory. And I pray, Lord God, that no person under the sound of my voice would miss out on the invitation not just to come near to the kingdom, not just to experience the blessings of the kingdom, but to enter into your kingdom and to be made one of your own forever. In Jesus' name, amen.